Good morning. My name is Dave Selvig, and this morning our scripture is from 1 Peter. So please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12 from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live in great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls." This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of God within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to those, to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Brent Strobel. I'm the youth pastor here at Evergreen. I'll be sharing this sermon with you this morning. So the other day when I was writing my sermon, I decided to work on my sermon outside. Now I know that today it looks terrible out there, 
But if you remember back to Thursday, the sun was shining, there was almost no clouds in the sky, and the temperature was great. So I decided to work on my sermon at Gasworks Park. Has anyone been to Gasworks? Yeah, it's a, it's a great place. I love anything that's on Lake Union. Lake Union is one of my favorite places in Seattle. Uh, when I was working at Gasworks and looking at Lake Union, I started to think about uh, a time I went with my family to the Ballard Locks. Has anyone been to the Ballard Locks? Yes, it's a great place. Um, well, if you haven't gone to the Locks, you should. It's a great place. It's where Lake Union is connected to the Puget Sound. The fresh water is connected to the salt water. Boats go back and forth, uh, but another thing that goes back and forth through the locks is salmon. Has anyone seen the salmon cross the locks? Yeah, it's a great, it's so cool to see the salmon go back and forth between the locks. Um, When they're in the juvenile stage and they're really small, maybe about like this small, salmon are called smolts. And what they do at um, the Ballard Locks is during smolting season, I don't actually know if it's called that, but during the season that the smolts go from the lake to the sound, they put up these uh, tubes, as you can see. And those tubes allow a constant steady flow of fresh water to the salt water. And through the tubes, the little salmon smolts launch into the sound, as you can see right there. It's, uh, I highly recommend you go during smelting season. It's cool to see these fish just jump out. Um, but when I started thinking about these smolts that go from the lake to the sound, I was starting to think about how it's interesting that no other fish do this. It's just unique to salmon. There, we have a lot of different types of fish in Lake Union, in Lake Washington, but salmon are the only ones that decide to make this journey. So why do they make this journey? Why do they go from the fresh water to the salt water? Why do they make this long journey that's dangerous? Now, the locks aren't that dangerous, um, but what's even more dangerous is the dams that you have, for instance, on the Columbia River. And even in those cases, the salmon smolts still choose to enter the ocean. Well, the reason why salmon do this is because it is instinct, The smolts have never been to the ocean, yet they have this inexplicable desire and ambition to go into the ocean. They have lived in freshwater their whole life, yet they feel they're destined for saltwater. The reason why salmon make this journey, as I said before, is because it is their instinct. But instinct comes from somewhere. It comes from how they were designed. Because salmon are destined to live their adult life in salt water, they have an instinct to find it. Otherwise, if they were not meant to live in the ocean, then why would they have this longing? They wouldn't. Creatures only have desires and longings for the things that they are destined for, the things they're meant to have. The reason why salmon have this ambition is solely because God created them to live in salt water. Other fish don't have this longing. C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of a fish out of water. He says, if you take a fish out of water, it will flail around until it senses water and then will flop back in. And fish long for water because they were designed for it. Desire comes from destiny. We desire what we're destined for. It is this concept of destiny 
begetting desire in which Peter starts off his letter to the churches of Asia Minor. Look at how the letter starts off in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in this world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. There are three concepts at least already in these two verses, but I'm just going to touch on two. One, the idea speaks of us being strangers. The other idea is of us being elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The word exiles here or strangers is translated as exiles, strangers, or foreigners. And there's both a literal and metaphorical meaning. The majority of the people in the churches of Asia Minor were likely lowly members of society with fewer rights than a Roman citizen, their status being even lower because of their status as Christians. Peter wrote this letter toward the end of his life around 60 AD, just before Nero's persecution was ramping up. Literally, these people were exiles and strangers. But moreover, it was their present status at outsiders that put them in touch with their spiritual reality that there is an exilic and strange nature to being a human on this world. All humans from all ages feel that there is something incomplete about this world, something missing. That's why we've developed religions from all societies, from all across the world for thousands of years developing ideas of deities and spirits in an afterlife. In addition to talking about their present status, Peter in his letter is addressing their spiritual strangeness. Like a fish out of water, humanity was created for something more than we can currently experience in this world. The second part of these two verses is the concept of being elected or chosen by God. Now, the concept of election has caused theological debates for ages, which I don't intend to get into today, Uh, but put it simply, God is the one who chooses to give humanity grace and salvation. He is the reason why we long for something else than this world, and we are the ones who accept this gift of grace. Once we enter paradise, we might likely find that God's sovereignty was more active in our accepting of this gift than we had realized, and also that our choosing to accept this gift had greater weight than we might realize. The point is that we long for something else, and it's because God designed us for something else. And it is these Christians to whom Peter is writing. They have realized this, and they have accepted the call to start the journey towards this something else. Like the salmon smolts headed towards salt water, these Christians have realized there are better waters, and they have begun the journey. The rest of our scripture reading for today Verses 3 through 12 talk about the hope of salvation for which verses 1 through 2 says we're destined for. This hope for Peter is the central part of the Christian's life. It is their goal. It is the reason for which they live and it is the driving force behind how they live as members of the body of Christ and what they do on this earth. Throughout the rest of the first epistle, Peter exhorts and inspires the Christians to live as the body of Christ and be a witness to this world through faith, hope, and love. And it is because 1 Peter is a letter about how to live 
as the body of Christ on this earth, that he starts with the hope of their salvation. To Peter, the salvation is the crux of their existence, the reason why they do what they do. And so today, our focus of this sermon is on that hope, the hope of salvation, and how this affects how we live today. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, he did not need to explicitly detail every part of how salvation happens, because he was writing it to the early church. They already had a pretty good picture of what their hope looked like. This letter, then, is an inspiration, a reminder for the people that their hope of salvation should be their comfort during times of persecution, and it should be their reason for living the way they did. Since the early church was persecuted and outcasts, they could have been and probably were tempted to flee from society. They could have been tempted to turn inwards and focus merely on maintaining their own morals and ethics. Yet, the hope the early church had inspired them not to flee from society, but engage with society, even if it meant their suffering could be worsened. Peter tells them it is in these hard times that they should consider suffering pure joy in light of the hope they had. Peter reminds the church in this letter that salvation isn't just about being saved from something, but it's about being saved for something. Their salvation is for the hope of the entire world, for lives of holiness, for loving one another deeply from their heart, as it says in 1 Peter 1, 22. Just as Peter's letter reminded the early church of what salvation meant for their daily lives, this letter can speak to us and remind us that the hope of salvation is the reason for us to live and act a certain way. Today, however, there is much confusion about what our hope of salvation is. So much so that all too often, salvation has encouraged the church in the past to flee from society when it feels threatened instead of engaging society. Too often, the church has turned inward and focused on maintaining its morals and securing its identity. So how did this happen? How did the church go from engaging in society, even if it meant suffering trials, to fleeing from it? Well, we do have about 2,000 years of distance between us and the letter. And in that time, I think our ideas of salvation have been influenced greatly by Greek thought. So we'll have to do a little bit of unpacking today to determine what our hope of salvation is. One author who's done a lot of work on this topic, N.T. Wright, uh, speaks about the hope of salvation in his book, Surprised by Hope. He goes into great detail and clarity, uh, talking, just pulling out all these scriptures and stories um, from his life and other people's lives. And he, he really does a great job of talking about what our hope is. I highly recommend that you go pick up this book and read it. So what is this Greek thought that has affected our view of salvation? Well, it's Platonic thinking. Plato uh, and his followers held to a Greek idea that in our body we have these eternal souls that existed before creation. And that when creation happened, our eternal souls got trapped in these bodies, in these awful bodies. And it is the goal of salvation to escape our bodies in this material realm into a world of pure spiritual energy. That sounds a little familiar, right? This idea was not only in Greek thought, but was in all the major 
religions of the time, and even in modern-day religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. This material world was a place where our soul is trapped, and we need to escape it. Now, this idea goes in direct contradiction to the Judeo worldview. Jews had a much different concept of creation and the afterlife. Jews believed that nothing was eternal save God the Father. Humans did not have eternal souls that existed before creation. Rather, before creation, only God existed. Our existence began on the sixth day when God breathed into the dust and formed us out of clay. And in Job, it says that if God were to remove his breath from us, we would turn back into that dust and cease to exist. Consequently, this means our eternal qualities have nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's eternal qualities. We are living because God created us and because he sustains us. We exist in a sense because it is God who thinks of us. We are on his mind. It says in scripture, God spoke us into existence as he spoke the creation into existence. He speaks our very DNA into being. At his word, life appears. Before creation, there was only God. And it was because he had us in his mind that we were created. So if this concept of a soul trapped in a body is Greek and not the Jewish Christian concept, then how come the word soul is all over the Bible? Well, that's because the concept of soul is in the Bible, but it's different. The Hebrew word for soul, nefesh, also means body. To the Jewish mind, your soul was your body. Your flesh and your personality, your essence, was interconnected. It was the same thing, not something separate. And in the New Testament, when it uses the language of soul, it picks up on this concept. So in verse 9, when our scripture says the salvation of your souls, it's not talking about this thing inside of us escaping us. Rather, it is talking about our whole selves, the salvation of our whole person. So if this is true, then what does verse 4 mean when it says our inheritance is kept in heaven? Well, in the Old Testament, the ground was simply called the earth, and the word they used for the sky was the heavens. What we call the atmosphere, they called the heavens. And so when they wanted to describe the realm in which God lived, they wanted to dis- they used the word heavens because the sky was out of their reach and God was out of their reach. It is a good way to describe the realm of God. And in the realm of God, the will of God was followed completely. Heaven was another way for the Jewish people to describe the realm in which God's will is followed utterly and completely. And verse 4 means our future hope resides with God in his realm. So if our salvation isn't about our souls just escaping and going to heaven, then what is our salvation about? Well, to explain that, we need to look at God's creation. To the Hebrew people, to the Hebrew people, although heaven, God's realm, was out of their reach, he was still extremely present. In addition to God playing an active role in humanity, his glory was everywhere for all to see. God's glory was in the stars and the sky, the moon and the sun, the trees of the forest, the lilies of the field, and the animals on the plain. It was his created order on the earth which showed people's God's glory. The scriptures are chock full of how God's glory is revealed in nature. 
In the book of Job, God goes on a litany for four chapters, just describing animal after animal, place after place. He describes, he says to Job, I even make it rain on a plain where humans have never been. God recites all these created wonders to Job when Job is questioning him. And it is God's revelation of his glory that puts Job to silent. Also, the psalmist in Psalm 8 is overwhelmed by God's glory. He describes the night sky full of the moon and the stars and wonders. And he says, what is humanity in the midst of all this that you're mindful of them? As you can see, the Jewish concept of the material world was vastly different from that of the Greeks. The Greeks saw this world as something to escape. They saw the material as bad. But to the Jews, this world was actually evidence of God's glory. The material, the created order was not evil. Rather, it was good. It says in Genesis 1 that God created the earth and it was good. In fact, creation started off perfect. It says without blemish. Certainly, a perfect earth is different from the platonic view of bad material world. In the book of Genesis, when God creates the world, as I said, he said it was very good. And when he created us, he deemed us very good. In Eden, everything was perfect. The world was as it was meant to be, with all the animals and humans and nature getting along and revolving around God, their creator. Humans had access to the tree of life, which allowed them to live forever as long as they continued to eat of it. And God told them that all they had to do was obey him and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if they did this, they would surely die. And surely they did die, but it took a while. Once they left Eden, they no longer had access to this tree of life and death became a possibility. It entered their reality. Even though corruption and decay entered into the system of this earth when Adam and Eve left the garden, God said the world was still good. The earth continues to show God's glory. That is why the Jewish people were insulted by the Greek ideal to escape the world, that the world was bad. They thought Greek philosophers to be full of empty philosophy with their heads in the clouds. Therefore, when God starts to speak of salvation in the scriptures to the Jewish people, he does it within this Judeo framework of the earth and the created order being good. God said through his prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, that the kingdom of God would be brought into this world through the sending of his Messiah. In Isaiah 65, it says, when the Messiah comes, it will put an end to human history as we know it. And once human history ends, God will come down to this earth and remake it anew. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Revelations reveals that this heaven will be a marriage between heaven and earth. It will be earth as it was meant to be. Just as a heaven is a realm in which God's will is followed, so too will the new earth become the realm in which God's will is followed. Salvation is a redemption of the earth, not escaping from it. Isaiah says this new earth will have mountains, forests, waters, plains, animals of all, of all sorts. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The lion and the oxen will be there. This new heaven and this new earth will be inhabited by us, God's people. We will plant and grow food, interact with one another, and delight in everything on the earth. In Revelation 22, it says, On this new earth, the tree of life will be back again as it was in Eden, and we will eat of it. 
and live eternally on this new earth, the earth as it was meant to be, Eden restored. This is our hope. We'll be resurrected into new bodies, though they won't be quite like they were before. In Isaiah, it says, we'll be a people that do not decay and we'll not die from disease. In essence, Paul compares our present mortal bodies with our future resurrected bodies as comparing the feeble light of the moon in contrast with the brilliance of the sun in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want a glimpse of what it will be like to be resurrected, look no further than the first and only resurrected human so far, Jesus Christ. When he was resurrected, he was similar and dissimilar from his old body. Notice his mother, when she sees him in the garden, doesn't even recognize him at first until he points it out to her. Yet, he still had signs of his old body. He had the wounds in his hand from the cross, the wound in his side from the spear. He even ate food and ate fish with the disciples by the lakeside. The resurrection of our bodies unto a new heaven and new earth is what salvation looked like in the Judeo framework. The strangeness of the world that Peter talks about in the beginning of this letter is not that we are created for something entirely different, but rather something more. When I was dating Eva, at some point I decided that I wanted to marry her. Not because marriage was something completely different, although it turns out it is pretty different, um, but because dating was in some ways similar and in other ways dissimilar. Dating was like a blueprint for marriage. If you look at a blueprint and compare it to a house, they look pretty different, but with trained eyes, you can kind of see how the blueprint will become a house. When I was dating, I could see what our marriage might be like. By dating Eva for three years, we got to spend a lot of time together. We hung out. We went on dates. We shared meals together. We kissed. We shared life together, and it was great. But it was so limiting, especially during summer when we didn't see each other for months. By dating Eva, as I said before, I was able to have a blueprint of what marriage would be like. There came a point in our dating where I began to become dissatisfied with dating life. And I wanted something more. Just like how those little smolted salmons, uh, they yearn for something more. They want to go from fresh water to salt water. My dissatisfaction with keeping things the way they were wasn't because I wanted something entirely different. Rather, it was because I wanted what started by dating her to become fulfilled. Dating I found limited because God created human couples for marriage. He created the two to become one. It is because humans were designed to become married that I longed to marry Eva. And this is why we long for something more than this current earth. This longing, though, doesn't mean we're created for something entirely different. It means we're created for something more, a more complete earth, an earth that has been married to heaven and become one. God desires in the end to not have a divorce between heaven and earth, but a marriage. We long what we are originally intended for, for the next step. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his works, describes the new heaven and the new earth as a more real earth. In his book, The Last Battle, which is the last book in his Narnia series, it ends with a surprising twist. All the main characters die. What happens is that Aslan, who's the Jesus character, comes back to earth 
well, to the Narnian earth a second time. And when he comes, he ends Narnian history and he opens up the new heaven and the new earth. And as you see in the picture, that's a picture of the uh, heroes of the story and the animals entering the new heaven and the new earth. And when they enter it, they are astounded to find that the mountains and the grass and the clouds and the animals that were in the old Narnia are also in the new Narnia, but it made the old Narnia look just like a blueprint. One of the main characters makes this remark. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. That is how the new heaven and the new earth will be. It will be more real, more in tune with the longing in our hearts. Once again, this longing is not to escape the earth as the Greeks thought. Rather, it's an ancient story going back to the beginning of creation itself. The cross and the resurrection were in God's design from the beginning. He knew what he would have to do in order to make his creation follow him. His plan from the beginning was to create a more a perfect earth, realizing that humanity would corrupt it, and the, he would have to send his son to die and then rise again to begin the process of its redemption. That is why our scripture says in verse 10 through 12 that the, prophet looks, the prophets looked toward these event, events, and the angels even look into these things. Those connected to God the prophets and the angels have been waiting for the resurrection as the climax of God's redemption of the earth. The redemption of the earth that the early Christians longed for started with the death and resurrection of Christ, but it happened in a different sequence than they expected. They expected the Messiah would come down, human history would end immediately, and then God would immediately move earth to heaven. Jesus revealed that his resurrection that the coming of God's kingdom would not happen in that way. Instead, when Jesus came to this earth, he started the kingdom of God. But it would not come into its fruition until he came a second time. In the interim period, Jesus would go to heaven, and heaven would be open to those who put their faith in him, thanks to what he did on the cross. And it is when he comes a second time and the earth or heaven are made into one that the faithful will come down to the new heaven and earth and be resurrected into new bodies alongside with every human who has ever lived. Then all will be judged by Jesus and those who put their faith in him will be allowed to go to the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus will be in the flesh walking amongst us as our Lord, Savior, and friend and we will never die. Therefore, the kingdom of God was now on this earth, started by Jesus' resurrection, but would not be complete until he came again. This is what it means in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. The Christians were a part of the kingdom of God now because they had been sprinkled by Jesus' blood and their sins washed away. Their obedience was given over to God. They had been born again. By giving their will to God, Christians had become a part of, of people who follow God's will and the process of redemption started on this earth. However, the earth would not be completely aligned to God's will until Jesus comes again. And it's when Jesus comes again in the last days that the Christians inheritance, it speaks of in verse five, the heavenly realm will come down and be married to the earth. So why does this matter? Well, when we as Christians started believing that our future hope was only an escape from the world, we began to escape society 
At some point in the 70s, with a fear that society had become secularized, it confirmed our idea that this world was headed towards hell. We were threatened, and our focus turned inwards on maintaining morals and our identity. Because our future, because our future hope was thought to be an escape from this world, it didn't matter as much that we engaged the outside world. So Christians began to separate themselves from society. We created our own music stations, TV stations, bookstores, slogans, clothing, cartoons, you name it. This is what we call the Christian subculture. And it is this escapist mentality that Peter is writing against in his letter. Peter realizes that this world is hostile, but he says it's not a reason to escape it. We are to work with God towards its redemption. Remember, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were suffering under persecution. Yet he asked them to endure and engage society. He says in verse 6 through 7 that we will suffer and endure trials because of our faith in Christ. Yet, if the Christians are faithful amongst a hostile culture, this will bring praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. Right as, Christian, right as persecutions to Christians are ramping up, Peter calls for the Christians to continue living in society and witnessing as opposed to withdrawing. He calls them to do this through the hope of salvation. He reminds them that they have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in verse 3. Their hope is in the resurrection of Christ and their future resurrection into the new heaven and the new earth. It is this hope in a future redeemed earth that gives Christians a reason to participate in redemption now. Just as a belief in a future escape from this earth encourages Christians to sometimes escape from society, a belief in a future redemption of the earth encourages us to help redeem the earth now. God is building his kingdom on earth and we are citizens of heaven. We are a people who follow God's will. We help him manifest his kingdom now. And God wants us to help him redeem this earth just as his will is done on heaven, so too does God ask us to be vessels of his will on earth. Wherever there is brokenness, decay, and corruption, we are to help redeem. We as Christians should be invading all the broken places of the world, seeking to be vessels for God's redemption. It says in verse 6 that Christians in Asia Minor were suffering all kinds of trials. This is because they were seeking the redemption of the earth in its broken places. When you follow God's will, those who are opposed to God's will are bound to make you suffer. When we as Christians seek to redeem what is broken, we will encounter suffering. So much corruption and decay have entered the world. Humanity is enslaved to so many vices. People around the world are enslaved to addictions, cults, religion, extremism, and violence. Right now, there are literally over 300,000 modern-day slaves. Right here in Seattle, we have homeless and many more who are underemployed. Spouses are distant from one another and children can go without loving parents. To top all this, we wreak havoc on God's good earth. Even though scripture is loaded with scripture after scripture talking about how God's creation declares his glory, we pollute it every day. Church, the world is broken and we are broken. God asks us to seek its redemption. When we do things like Mary's Place and Operation Nightwatch, we help to participate in God's redemptive work in this world now. Let us do more of these things. Consider Romans 8, 18 through 24. 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjugated to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption into the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For it is in this hope that we are saved. Our hope is for heaven to come down to earth. That is why we are Christians. That is why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we pray this prayer, we pray for the redemption of the earth, for the redemption of the brokenness, for the redemption of our bodies. We pray for that glorious day when Jesus comes again. Let us pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.